And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Schreiner, Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. And we're back. We're back more or less live. We're recording this only hours before it will go live. So um, is this the first time we've actually done one between the two of us since we got back from since June. World Cup? Since, since June. Since June. So yeah. welcome back, anybody who's still there. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed <laughs> We hope we've enjoyed the uh, conversations we had with folks at Worldcon and that you'll enjoy the ones we have later this year with folks at, at, at World Fantasy. So what have you been doing since you got back home from your worldwide tour? Staggering around, being unwell, failing to read enough, you know, that's basically it. You know, um, signed a couple of book contracts. That was nice. Um, that's good news. Read some some fiction, which is good. Um, probably nowhere near enough, and basically been just getting ready to wildly panic about the last quarter of the year. This is a bad time of the year for you because you have to do everything at once: anthologies and reading lists and books and delivering books. Yeah, I mean the way the next sort of through till February will work is. I'm currently editing some short fiction for Tor at the moment. I've got some novella manuscripts due in, or in fact, one just arrived two days ago to read and, and to, to deal with. I'm currently compiling a new science fiction anthology that I have to deliver early next year to Solaris. And uh, I'm actively working on a new fantasy knowledge, not anthology I have to deliver in May. And I'm delivering... Uh, the best science fiction and fantasy of the year, volume thirteen, on December the twenty. Sorry, December the fifteenth. That's got to be into Solaris by the fifteenth. So I am, and, and somewhere in there, I have to work out what I'm going to do about Locus recommended reading. We start up that process usually sometime in mid-November, so that will overlap the um, the other processes. And then my family just booked a holiday away in the southwest of West Australia over Christmas, so we'll be, I'll be away offline for a week in there. So so we'll see how, we, how it all possibly works out. It sounds like a busy summer for you, I guess. It will be a very, very busy summer, but that's okay. You know, there are worse things than a busy summer, Gary. There are people, I mean, we're, we're talking about the number of books you have to deliver, and there are people who, there are people who listen to this podcast who have a hard time getting a contract to do one book. And here you are, a wash in book contracts, a wash in responsibilities. Um, and it's a problem which many people would envy enormously, and I somewhat envy it. I don't envy look, as much as you have to do. Look, I would say that I'm more observing the fact of my situation than hopefully complaining about it too much. I am painfully aware of how privileged it actually is that to be able to sell books is really not as, as straightforward as it feels sometimes. And even I lose track. I mean, I, I forget that I send out 10 proposals for every book that lands or 15 proposals for every book that finds a home. So, And I think that's one of the things that young writers especially – I don't know if there are any budding anthologists. I, I don't know if there, there are people who, who are at this age. They're, they're 18 or 20 years old now, and they've read, let's say, your entire Infinity series. And they, I want to do that for a living. Um, did you ever have that sense when you were younger that you were reading Terry Carr and maybe you were reading Groff Conklin and maybe you were even reading Gardner Dozois and thinking, I want to do that? It would be reading the tail end of Terry Carr's Best of the Year series and reading the beginning of Gardner's series. And I was 20 when the first 
uh, Year's Best came out from Gardner. And never occurred to me in 100,000 years that I would possibly ever edit such a thing. I had no aspirations, no notions of doing it. It wouldn't have occurred to me to edit an anthology. It was just a series of you know, happenstantial circumstances and an act of interest. You know, it's like, wow, here I am, and suddenly I'm editing, co-editing a magazine and co-publishing a magazine, which I did for a while. And that meant that I built up a lot of local knowledge and that meant that when the market here in Australia changed and you could possibly sell such a thing, it's suddenly thought, well, I, I, I could try. And then the market was in, in, you know, exceptionally fertile right then. You know, it's like very receptive. And so well, that, I was was able, the, that, that was your year's best Australian science fiction. Yeah, yeah. What, what yeah basically, absolutely. right at the time it crossed my mind to do such a thing, HarperCollins in Australia were looking to invest in their new Voyager imprint. They were just setting uh-huh. it up. So they, they, I mean, to be fair to them, they didn't, the people who were running it were very experienced editors, but weren't experienced in the field in science fiction. And so you could say to them something like, hey, a year's best would introduce you to a whole bunch of new writers. It'd be popular. It's the kind of thing people put in their imprints. How about you buy mine? And I, that landed, you know, and I knew the, I'd met the editor. And so I sent them a proposal. They sent me a contract. It all worked out. And that's the first time it became sort of even a notion and then other things unfolded I've talked about elsewhere before. But it was never an aspiration. I mean, I think now there definitely are people who aspire to such things. And, you know, and that's great, though it's a very, it's a very unreliable sort of source of work. I would imagine it would be, because it seems to me that anthology markets, and especially markets of original anthologies, ebb and flow from year to year. There seem to be some years when we see almost none of them and nobody wants to publish them anymore. And the next year, there are 20. Um, yes. And it, it's also a very difficult market to judge casually or superficially because a lot of things that look like viable books maybe aren't viable at a commercial level. I've mm-hmm. been, again, very lucky that all of my books have come out from commercial publishers of one kind or another. Uh, but you see a lot of Kickstarter anthologies, which have a lot of merit and, and, are, and are strong books, but don't necessarily have the kind of appeal to sell to a trade publisher. And those make it look as though there's more money to be made than maybe there really is, depending on you know, your, your situation. Well, the reason I'm curious about it is because you're right. When you have original anthologies that come out from, from major publishers or come out in hardcover or trade paperback or Back when Terry Carr was doing his anthologies, mass market, which meant an, an anthology that Terry Carr edited uh, would end up on spin racks in drugstores and supermarkets. It actually was available in the way that only mega bestsellers are available now. And it seemed to me that I've always thought anthologists define the readers define how you read a field in a certain way. And I'm trying to avoid asking you if you feel like you're a gatekeeper for the field. But to some extent, you can either be a gatekeeper or a gate opener. Uh, and by that, I mean this. I mean, uh, two two editors that I both admire for different reasons. One was a magazine editor and one was an anthology editor. I grew up reading Groff Conklin anthologies. And Groff Conklin pretty much uh, defined the, the golden age of science fiction. I mean, except for that one Healy and McComas anthology, these big anthologies. He went on doing them until he was in the 70s. And they were always reliably what I'd seen before. 
uh, even his horror anthologies were reliably uh, reflecting the tastes that I grew up with when I was 12 years old. And then the editor, uh, and I, I think of her name because of this David Bunch book coming up, the editor of Amazing when I was about that age was Seal Goldsmith. And she was buying stuff that nobody else was buying. She was buying stuff by Ursula Le Guin and Arya Lafferty and David Bunch and Gene Wolfe. And that seems to me to be a gate opener editorial policy rather than a gatekeeper editorial policy. I think that's your perspective rather than the truth of it. I think it is an un- yeah, I think it's unfortunately true that just as much as any any decent editor in one of these roles is a gate opener, you bring in new writers. You are equally, I mean, you're keeping just as many out, more out. I mean, you're not for everybody that Celie Goldsmith published, she didn't publish a whole bunch more. Um, I guess it's how open you are as a gatekeeper. I mean, I, I, I don't like the term. I'm really uncomfortable with the role because it suggests that you are looking to keep things out rather than let them in. Or you're selecting things that are appropriate. And I am happiest when the gatekeeping role for our field is spread as weakly and as broadly as humanly possible. You know, I, I, I like a world where everybody gets to gatekeep a bit. But, you know. I can understand. I can understand that, but I, uh, th- th- there's still a sense of difference. And I, had, I, I go back to your um, Eclipse series, for example, which uh, I still think is one of the, not one of the longest, but one of the classic series, Ted Chang's Exhalation, which is now the title story of his new collection, w- was in Eclipse. I could read that depending, uh, before, before we even knew each other well, knowing that there would be one or two writers in there that I'd never heard of before who wrote the kind of fiction I didn't know could be written before. Um, and I see that. I see that occasionally from publishers. I see it from Small Beer Press. I see it from Subterranean. Some, um, so you're right. People are being uh, excluded that may be just as innovative and fascinating as as the writers that, that you permit through the gates or that Celia Goldsmith did or that uh, Gavin and Kelly at, at Small Beer do. But the point is, you're not defining the gate the way it was defined in a previous generation. I, I um, hope not. I, I mean, I look at the Vandermeers as a great example. They are uh-huh. incredibly in, open and inclusive, and looking to bring more and more new people into the field at all times, and getting and, and looking to get us to reassess who we consider as being part of the field. And I think those those are very important things, and you can see it with you know other places around the field, whether it be in you know, Fire magazine, whether it be you know the stuff that's coming through I guess the Carl Brandon Society, whether it's um, you know stuff that happens at Tor, whether it's stuff that happens at smaller magazines wherever else. Um, as much as anything else, our, uh, you know, the role of editors is to bring new people into the field, to to to, to churn it over. It's, it's one of the things that must make writers with an established career nervous, is that the very nature of the field is churn. You know, it's generational change, and you only do that in a healthy way if you bring new people in all the time. Well, th- this is okay. Th- th- this is all leading to what we were actually planning to talk about tonight because we we did plan this one, folks. We we spent oh. 90, 120 seconds figuring out what we were going to talk about here. But it seems to me that the editorial process you're talking about is not that different. You're selecting the best of the year, especially the best of uh, the, uh, the recommended reading list. The, the, the books we're going to recommend novels so far this year, we're going to talk about a little bit later. 
uh, Hugo Awards ballots, Locus Awards ballots, all these, it seems to me, are not what I would consider uh, inarguably the best of anything. Uh, what they are is a way of defining a particular community and um, recognizing uh, works that may or may not be the best in, in the entire world. Let me give you an example. Today, I think it was today, the long list for the National Book Awards came out for fiction and young adult fiction. Um, and as most years, uh, none of the novels on the long list have I read. And I don't read a lot of mainstream fiction. Most of them, some of them I've never heard of. The only writer from or related to our tribe who was anywhere on the list was M.T. Anderson for a, a young adult fiction or young people's fiction, I think is the category they call it. And every year when this happens or what happens with the Booker Long List or what happens with the Pulitzer Prize nominees is that people in our field whine because we're being ignored, we're being excluded by this club. And we are. Those, those awards define their communities. And their communities have historically not included the likes of us. Uh, no reason why they necessarily should have. It would be nice if they did. It would be nice, for example, uh, if, if Le Guin, who got the National Book Award medal, the highest honor you can get, uh, if she had actually gotten the National Book Award for any of her books, that would have been nice. But the fact is that you know that's a different community. The people who objected to Nora Jemison winning uh, three Hugos in a row, uh, none of the ones I heard, and I may not have been involved enough with this, none of the people I heard who were upset about that had anything bad to say about any of her novels. They're terrific novels. They were very successful novels. The people who seemed to be upset about that hadn't read them. But what they were objecting to was that their community wasn't represented in the nominees. Um, and it probably wasn't. It probably was a community of a different generation. Um, and so, so every list we come up with, and we come up with a list of, of, of best novels, which we're going to do um, in a few minutes, that's what we think our community is doing, and our community may be completely different from, let's say, the military SF community. Well, or even the Hugo community, or even... Or even the Hugo community. Or whatever. I mean, certainly, yeah. I guess, for the purposes of this discussion, our community is the people who are listening. It is the mm -hmm. Coot Street community. It is because they're people that we talk to regularly, the Locust community. It's ourselves. You know, and I like to think, I mean, we're talking about gatekeeping. I like to think that what we're doing grows out of the simplest urge of any reader, and that is the, re the, the desire to share something terrific that you've read. I mean, when I first started reading when I was seven or eight years old, I would always hand the books that I loved best off to my older brother to read, and he would do the same. And I had other friends that we would share books with. I see my daughters do exactly the same with their friends. Everybody does it. Word of mouth is famously you know, the, the best way to promote a book, if you can. It's not something you can control. And these conversations then evolve, you know, because it comes down to, this is my favorite book right now, please read it. These are, these are my favorite books. Try reading those. Do you like them? Because it's a way we talk to each other. And then that evolves into the, well, these are my favorite books right now, and then I'm part of this thing that talks about the science fiction field. These are the books right now that define us right now, and this is what defines our year, and it begins to divide things up into some kind of time thing where we have some sort of an idea of what's happening. The idea of canon kind of comes later and is annoying, and I, I like less and less, but, but this 
I, the desire to, to find books of the year and to understand or get a feel for what's happening is just having a conversation. I mean, I was looking something up recently, uh, and because because I was I was inspired, if you like, by this idea of do I feel that 2018, as of September the 15th when we're recording, has produced the books that are going to be the books you look back and go, those are 2018's books, right? And 50 years ago this month, John Brunner released Stand on Zanzibar, right? 50 years ago in October, Ursula Le Guin released A Wizard of Earthsea, right? Wizard of Earthsea, Stand on Zanzibar, probably two or three other books define 1968 as a year in science fiction and fantasy. Even though back then probably it wasn't seen quite that way because Wizard was a children's book and so wouldn't have been considered as much by the uh, adult field, I suspect, but still. So now it's like, well, okay, well, if we've got Brunner and we've got Le Guin and there's probably a major Heinlein novel in there or something. Yeah, yeah. So what do we got? It's 2018. People run around calling every second week of the, of the, of the month a golden age. Uh, have books evolved? I mean, or, 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 you know, come out. Last year we had, you know, the new Nora Jemison, the new Stan Robinson, a handful of other books that were the books of the year. You go back not too many years ago, it was when Paolo Bacigalupi's The Wind-Up Girl and a few others came together. The first time that I wrote for Locus in 1997 and had to write for the year in review, the, you know, the, you know, Stan Robinson's Antarctica, Paul Preuss's Secret Passages, three, four, five other books were the flavor of the time. So I guess what inspired the conversation we're going to have about some of the books that stand out is, have we seen a, fl- a flavor of the time? Does 2018 yet have the book that people are talking about the most? And, I mean, we have to acknowledge up front, and I really strongly want to uh, acknowledge it, or are we outside of the conversation where those where other readers in our field have found their books of the year? That's where we need to hear from them and find out what they've been reading that we haven't. Because yeah, yeah. This, this is the other thing. When when you come up, when, whenever I come, whenever I'm asked to come up with a best of the year list or a recommended reading list, I'm acutely aware of the books I haven't read. I'm acutely aware of the fact that I may have missed the book which I would have loved more than anything else that year because it just didn't come across my desk. Um, and sometimes a year or two later, I will read it and think, this is the best book of the year, but it's two years ago, and I can't say it's the best book of the year anymore because I'm too late reading it. So a lot of this depends not on what the best books are, but on when you read these best books. And not everybody in the field uh, is as uh, assiduous or required by circumstance or jobs. Not everybody tries to read a book as soon as it comes out. Um, and uh, it, as a matter of fact, years ago, this is less an issue now than it, it, it was 20 or even 30 years ago. A, a lot of books, you know, you expect exactly one year before a mass market paperback would come out. And the readership was always larger on the mass market paperback. So you had a huge number of readers who were reading a book in the year after it was eligible for awards. Um, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure what that means, but I, I, I guess uh, anytime somebody comes up with a best list, um, you're, you're, you're thinking – this is the best of what I've seen. There are books that I know are on your list that I've heard of that I'm sure are terrific uh, that I haven't seen yet. Yeah. And I probably won't see before the end of the year. And I guess it's admitting that as much as we're 
passing our opinions on to Cood Street listeners, it's an artificial construct. You know, it's as you say, what we happen to have read as against what we happen not to have, what we haven't heard of yet, what we haven't got to yet. The books that haven't been published for October, November and December, the books that were published in a different Outside of somewhere we were paying attention to. I mean, as Locus' reviews editor, I maybe have to have a slightly broader perspective, but still, you're reading what you're reading. And then, because we don't publish a lot of multiple reviews now, you know, if Russell Letson reviews it, you're probably not going to read it. Uh, if uh, Liz Burke you know, reviews it, you're probably not going to have read it. If Adrian Martini does, you're probably not going to have read it, which means there isn't quite that... Con- uh, consensus there is there are competing voices but there isn't clear clear consensus so yeah but let me let me segue into the discussion okay it's september we're seven months in we're two months from working on the recommended reading list without getting into names for books yet do you have a feel of a a major book or two or three that are the books of the year so far yes and no um, you, you, well, you mentioned Palobatric Lupi, and when you start talking about um, is there something that looks like it's going to sweep the Nebulas and the Hugos and uh, the, the Locus Awards, I haven't seen a book that I think looks like it's that innovative and that powerful. Uh, that being said, uh, there are books that I feel are – a couple of first novels are very strong. A couple of novels by experienced writers are very strong in, in, in their, in their in their, in their canon, and um, a couple of collections have been very strong. So, so there are books that I think are likely to be on awards ballots, uh, but they may not be on all the awards ballots. I, I'm, I'm not sure that even that idea of uh, sweeping three or four awards is necessarily a viable idea anymore. Well, I mean, it happens, but I'm not sure it's even in some ways, at least at this stage, important. It's more, you know... What are what are people talking about? Where you know, writers are talking about things that are viscerally important to us today. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about cultural change, and these underpin the basis of some of the best books of the year. We're not. I don't feel like what we're seeing major series come to a conclusion or progress the way we have. I would not be surprised if we don't see as many series novels on the Hugo and Nebula ballots next year as we did this year. You know. I mean, Nora Jemison will not be on the Hugo ballot next year because she doesn't have a book out. Yeah. Anne Leckie will not be on the Hugo ballot because she doesn't have a book out. Her next novel is a fantasy novel that comes out in the first quarter of next year. Right? So those are people who have been dominating the you know lists of late. You know? Um, on the other hand, if you go down to shorter lengths, you would imagine that Martha Wells and Nettie Okorafor will continue to appear in you know, year's best series on sorry on awards ballots because Binti is coming to a conclusion has come to a conclusion but is eligible. Murderbot, same kind of thing, wouldn't be surprising. So, segueing into the idea that I don't I don't the, the reason this conversation started is I don't have a feel for the books of the year. I don't sit there and go oh well this is the year that this is the book. That said. To start the conversation, the book that still stands out the most for me is Sam Miller's second novel, Blackfish City. Okay, you just stole. Okay, you completely stole my line. So now I, I, I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm copying what you were going to say because that was when we mentioned something like Wind Up Girl, uh, which seemed to me to be completely original. It was in keeping with earlier Bachelor Loopy stories. Blackfish City was the one that struck me as being. 
Um, this year's at first when I was reading it, and this is completely because of the art setting. I was thinking, okay, this is this year's version of Annalee Newitz's novel from last year because they're both Arctic novels with very interesting communities in them. But there's a lot more going on in in Sam Miller's uh, than just being set in the Arctic. It's it's a very interesting climate change novel which has, well, frankly, some terrific imaginative leaps in it, um, namely namely the the, the the killer whale and, and, and the, the whole the whole sort of folktale aspect to it strikes me as introducing a new kind of imaginative dimension which is not at all similar to but in some ways is parallel to the kinds of inventions that Bacigalupi was interesting was introducing when he was beginning his career in other words there's a lot more invention in the novel than simply being a climate change novel well, well yeah, I mean, but I mean, it's, well, I guess you know, when you say more invention than just being a climate change novel, I mean, there's this book about a floating city in a flooded in the Arctic Circle, where social engineering is being used, where uh, they're having to build an artificial environment to survive because of the impact of uh, climate change, where organized crime, political corruption, all are interplaying with the fates of these characters. You have, you say, the folktale element, you know, this mysterious orcomancer, this woman on, a, you know, riding a, a killer whale with a polar bear by her side, rolls into town, and then how does it impact on the characters there? Uh, Miller looks at issues of gender identity, uh, about how people interact and connect. It's really... And I mean, it's it's a powerful book, and it's a smart book, and it's a very concise book, which I love about it. You know, this is not the world's you know sort of longest book, and I would not be surprised to see it on all the major lists next year as one of the books of the year, quite readily. You know, and it's interesting that it comes from a non-genre publisher from Echo, um, and that you know, it sits between two YA novels that. Uh, Sam has done because there's the art of starving and then next year we're going to get destroy all monsters and it really does set him up as being a powerful powerful voice in the field and I would be really surprised not to see it on the Nebulas and Hugos and because we keep talking about these books in terms of their substance and almost worthiness it's a tremendously entertaining read it's an entertaining read, and we could we, we, well, we actually we have talked to Sam about it. It occurred to me when you were describing it that it's structured almost like a western. It's basically an isolated community, and somebody rides in, not on a horse, but on a whale, and interacts with the lives of everybody in the community. It could yeah. be a, a Kurosawa version of a, a of a western. It's like Seven Samurai, in a way. anyway, or like your Jimbo is what it's like. Actually. <laughs> anyway. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that. And look, I had to steal that one from you, Gary, because I knew you would start there. And I know, you've I've read more started. novels than I have, so I have to, you know, I've been reading short fiction, dude. I need need to get get my licks in. So, okay. okay. Let, let me throw out the name of a novel, which I think is uh, going to, I, I think it's getting a fair amount of attention. Um, but it's by a much more established writer, but one who hasn't published a lot of novels until last year and this year, and that's John Kessel's Pride and Prometheus, uh, which is... Uh, probably the novel, I guess, for the bicentennial of Frankenstein in our field, because it, uh, it, it it's it's a novel which I hope people take seriously, because there are so many, and I've talked to John about this, so many mashups about uh, Jane Austen and so many mashups about Frankenstein that it's very easy to look at the novel as a gimmick, uh, and yet it's a novel which has complete respect for 
the world and the style and the characters of Jane Austen, and equally complete respect for, for Mary Shelley. Uh, and it's an interesting kind of historical literary argument. And at the same time, it's a thriller. I mean, it's, it's basically a chase and pursuit thriller uh, that involves uh, one of the less, the, probably the lesser known of the Bennett sisters in Pride and Prejudice, becomes a scientist in it, which I think is terrific. Uh, so I, I hope that uh, gets on ballots. And that's one of the ones which uh, is oddly uh, science fiction only by virtue of our accepting Frankenstein as science fiction. Yeah, because it's basically gothic horror meets Regency romance. Exactly. I mean, so, so in, in, in some ways I could see that sort of thing ending up on uh, a, a world fantasy ballot as well as a Hugo ballot. And I, I hope it, it, it gets that kind of recognition. Um, I thought I, it was thrilling. I, I, I do too. And, you know, I think it's a great example of where a skilled editor brings an author back to prominence because this is, as you say, the second new book after The Moon and the Other that uh, John has done for Joe Montiot at Saga Press, and I hope there are many more. It's, I don't know that any of us had expected late career novels from John Kessel at this stage. It had been 20 or 30 years since his previous novel. So that was, that's was been very exciting. So, yeah. Okay. So is it my, my turn? My turn. Okay. Uh, if Pride and Prometheus is one of the Frankenstein novels of the year, probably the broadest... Um, if you like, broadest literary community appeal novel, I think in some ways, is Ahmed Sadawi's Frankenstein in Baghdad, which was is up for the Man Booker Prize. And, you know, it's, it's this story of this scavenger in this uh, future Baghdad who's collecting human parts and stitching them together to, to create a corpse because he wants to force the government to recognize these parts as people and give them proper burial. But what actually happens is things run amok. The corpse goes missing, there's murders, and it begins to be clear that something has happened and that this corpse has come to life. And, and that's, I've heard wonderful things about the novel, and I've not read it. So It is powerful, and it is beautifully written, and it is incredibly timely. Uh, probably, it, it came out, I think, in translation in January or February of this year in 2018. It's actually mm-hmm. originally a year or two older, I think, in, in its original publication. But... Um, a terrific book that was recommended to me by Ian Mond, who's now reviewing for Locus, and I would strongly recommend everybody hunt it out. I hope that gets a lot of attention. I hope I get a copy of it. I'll have to go out and I have to go out and buy one. I guess that's what I did, Gary. Stop whining. Okay. You, you can't believe the stuff they send to me. This is not Locus. I'm not blaming Locus because I do more than one book review column. I get stuff sent to me that I want to sort of write up a list of my tastes and send them back to these publicists and say, don't send me anything that doesn't match this list. But I thought that would sound arrogant. It would. Um, okay, but nevertheless. Before we let Frankenstein go, though, uh, as, as long as we're into uh, 200th anniversary, the other Frankenstein-related book, which I enjoyed this year, was the second volume of Theodore Goss's uh, series, which began with The um, Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, and now continues with really the much longer European travel for the monstrous gentlewoman. It's a, it's a big book. It is a travel book. It's a book that has a lot of love letters to Vienna and especially Budapest in it. And it's a different form. I mean, I, I, I remember I was talking with uh, Dora about this at, at, at Worldcon 
the first novel was essentially a thriller. The first novel was drawn on um, the mad scientist motifs that involved the parents, the fathers, really, of all the main characters, uh, Dr. Moreau and Rappuccini and uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and, of course, Victor Frankenstein. The second one really is more of a Victorian travelogue novel. The title, European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman, suggests it's somewhat more leisurely in development than the first one was, which it is. Uh, and I'll be interested to see if she continues sort of playing with this form when she gets to the third volume of the series. But one thing I will say, uh, Frankenstein's daughter is a, is a major figure in this. But for those people who read the first novel, like I did, and was thinking, we've got a couple of secondary characters from Dracula showing up in this. Okay, in European Travel from the Monstrous Gentlewoman, Dracula gets the best walk-on role he's had in the novel in many, many years, I think. <laughs> Can we just say, by the way, just make a quick note that five minutes ago you said that you know the one real Frankenstein novel we have, we just named three in a row, right? We did, yeah, I know. Probably some were missing as well. Probably so. I mean, though possibly happily so. But yes, I'm yet to pick up Dora's book, uh, because whilst it may be a book of travel, it's not a book that I want to read when I'm traveling, and I was. Only because it no, is a, like like as big as my head. It's a substantial book, but it moves very rapidly, and it does take you on a 19th century tour of Europe. The next the book next book I'm going to mention is a series novel. Uh, I've read it now. It's not out in stores yet, though. I recommend that everybody who can you know, pre-order it and its prequels or its, or its predecessors, more accurately. Mm-hmm. Dave Hutchison, who not five or six years ago had almost completely disappeared from the science fiction field, it felt, came roaring back in, in, into our attention with the first of his Fractured Europe books uh, mm-hmm. uh, a while ago, Europe in Autumn, which was a wonderful, powerful, great book. Uh, and really timely, there's, there's something about, well, maybe when you're outside the United States particularly, there's something about talking about Europe and the future of Europe that feels very of a piece with our time. Europe and its cultural conflict and its racial conflict and its history feels like a melting pot place. And into this, you know, Dave Hutchison injected basically a Cold War thriller kind of story that dealt with all the kind of issues that had to do with the conflict between Europe and how it's changing. And as Paul Kincaid points out in his lengthy review of Europe at Dawn, which is the fourth and final Fractured Europe book, uh, it really feels powerfully connected to what's happening with Brexit, which is obviously at the forefront of you know, the political consciousness in the United Kingdom and to some degree elsewhere within the former British Empire as well. Uh, and Europe at Dawn is just a wonderful, powerful book. One of two new novels that Hutcherson released in fairly quick succession because he had a book um, earlier out at this year, was, was it Shelter, I think? which is the first of a, of a series that he's co-writing with Adam Roberts, of whom we will hear again in a moment. But all of the Europe books, strong, strongly recommended. I think one of the problems that we have here in the States is um, either not getting to see these books at all or not getting to see them until much later, because I think, I think you're right. I think what's going on in Europe now, not only with Brexit, but with the rise of right-wing ideologies and that sort of thing, it's fascinating, but it may be less fascinating to Americans because we have our own problems here. Uh, but another novel that deals with future Europe that uh, it's, it seems to me uh, matches part of what Paul Kincaid was saying, which has not been published in the States and may not be, was Simon Ings' The Smoke. And Simon Ings 
very interesting writer, who's always been a very interesting writer, uh, started writing novels again just a couple of years ago after taking some time writing a book about the eye or something like that. And it's it's a very grim and, and powerful uh, novel about a kind of, I guess the same kind of thing you're talking about, a, a, a discombobulated Europe that those of us in the States don't, even hear enough about maybe that maybe there's a sense that there isn't as much of a market here for those books uh, but it's 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 clear that there's you know the idea of what's going to happen and actually if we go back a couple of years uh, and think of james bradley's clade his version of europe in that was the same kind of sort of somewhat disintegrating but not disintegrating of course he had scenes set in australia and every place else but but it seems to me that that kind of thing is less visible to us in the States because of our preoccupation with our own homegrown dystopias. No, just your, your, your preoccupation with yourself. Referring to fiction. Just, just your yeah, preoccupation right, exactly. with yourself, that's all. That's America yeah, for okay, you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the things I'm talking about, I, no, one of the... This is, this is completely a parenthesis, but um, one, of the, one of the novels I'll be reviewing next time in Locus is to be in the November issue is a science fiction novel by Joyce Carol Oates. And it starts out as a dystopia. Unfortunately, it doesn't stay there. It turns out to be a very interesting novel in completely unrelated ways. But I started reading and I thought, you know, she's trying to make this dystopia sound really awful. And you can't do that anymore. Dystopias are boring. Dystopias no longer require any imagination whatsoever for American readers, at least. <laughs> and therefore, why bother with them? <laughs> the Hunger Games, you go back and read The Hunger Games and say, well, what, what, what's fiction about this? First of all. <laughs> anyway, that's, yeah. that's, that's my parentheses. Is it okay. my turn? I think it's my turn. I think you just mentioned okay, it. Okay. Um, Having said that there won't be any series conclusions on Hugo Ballots, and as much as I love Dave Hutchison's books, I'd be surprised if they made the Hugo Ballot, uh, not based on merit, but, but on other just exposure. Uh, the next book I'm going to mention is a series book and is a series con conclusion for a series that's been nominated for the Hugo for the last couple of years. Uh, Yun Ha Lee finishes Machinery's Empire with Revenant Gun which brings the story of Shuas Jadao to a conclusion. This this big uh, space opera in this intriguing far future that looks at being human and being an alien and deals with political intrigue and cultural things and issues of gender. And it's really interesting and fascinating and beautifully done. Uh, Yoon is a, is a wonderful writer and this, I mean, has another book that I can't wait to read coming out a little bit later in the year but this one is a, or, or early next year but this is a, a, a really terrific book a strong conclusion to a, a major series and I'd also give a shout out because it seems appropriate to me to do so at this point to a friend of mine Jonathan Oliver who was my editor at Solaris and who was the commissioning editor for the Europe books and for the Machineries of Empire books so just as Joe uh, Monty at SAG had been critical in bringing John Kessel back to the field John, when he was at Solaris, he left recently, and it's been replaced by David Thomas Moore, who's also terrific, but in a different way, um, had, brought these books out, and they're really wonderful books. There was a sense of, uh, and I've not read Revenant Gun, but there's a sense I get in, in Yoon Ha Lee's future that uh, you very seldom get where you're thinking, this is, it's very sophisticated, it's gorgeous writing, but it's also 
it's a different future than one I expected to see from anybody else. The other, the other experiences, and again, these are not similar in structure, but similar in the way I responded to them as a new way of looking at the future. One was uh, when Hanu Rayanimi's first novels came out, um, and I thought the, the Quantum Thief. And, and um, a, a similar one would have been way back when Greg Egan first started describing futures that I don't think anybody had thought about in those terms before. And that's kind of the sense of originality from, from you and Holly's fiction. Um, yeah, very in, much. In, in general. Can I just say, as an aside, I encourage everybody to jump online and pre-order Dragon Pearl by Yoon Ha Lee, which is a YA science fiction novel that Yoon has written for the Rick Reardon Presents series of books. And that's coming uh-huh. out in January and should be fabulous. So, yeah. Anyway, your well, turn, Gar. Here we are. As long as, as long, well, I'm, 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 we're not doing this. We should make this – I should make this clear. I'm not doing this in descending order. I mean, no, no. I think – Blackfish City was um, uh, really the most striking original uh, first novel of the year. But uh, now we're doing things according to free association. And since I already mentioned Hanu Rayanimi, he has a new novel out this year, which is his first fantasy novel. It's, a, it's what the Clute uh, Encyclopedia calls a posthumous fantasy uh, called Summerland, which is very interesting. It's, an, it's essentially an espionage novel involving ghosts and, uh, and an afterlife. Um, and it's interesting to me because it seems to me that um, Ryan Yemi is one of these writers, and Yun Ha Lee is another one who's training in mathematical 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 logic. It's not <laughs> easy to say. Has well, to do with the way they. It's a way they. It has to do with the way they structure and plot their fictions. Everything works like clockwork, and so in many ways. Um, Summerland is a hard science fiction novel disguised as a fantasy. All the technologies in it have very specific rules. They have very specific kind of laws that they have to follow. And it's uh, and he's worked out the magic so that it functions in, in, in such a way. And I know some people were kind of puzzled by it because here's a guy who's extremely good at imagining the future. And here he's imagining a kind of alternate, uh, partly spirit world past. Uh, it, it's not the sort of thing we expected from him at all. And I think that may have disappointed people who were looking for more quantum thief kinds of things. On the other hand, and, and uh, I, I have a lot of respect for him moving into a new area with, uh, with this kind of a world. Look, I'd like to think that it's, and it's on my list as well, because see here, look, I'm holding a copy up. Mm-hmm. You, you listeners, you can't see it. Really? Um, it's out here. It's widely available. I hope it, it's finding readers. It's really well done. I mean, it's one of those books. I mean, Adam Roberts was talking about this online and was saying it's a book that he felt he had problems with when he first read it, and I think that's probably fair. Uh huh. But which sticks in your mind. It's one of those books. You know, it's one of those books where you, you're not a hundred percent sure you think it's as good as it is until you look back on it. Right. Uh, and so it's really interesting. So, uh, yeah, I think it's one we should recommend. And it, it, it might be one um, – actually, it might be one to recommend to people who were enormously puzzled by his refusal to explain anything in his quantum thief universe. I mean he, yeah. he kept inventing terms like gebulots and that kind of thing. And uh, it was a challenging hard science fiction thing. It was super hard science fiction in a way, but everything worked out. Here, since he's not using actual physics or actual information theory – he has to more or less explain his... So in some ways, it's more accessible than his earlier novels. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, it is. It's my turn now. Accessible, accessible. Okay. Next book I'm going to recommend is one of the most fun books I've read all year. I think the idea for it sounds pretty frivolous and silly, but the author has managed to build something much more substantial than it appears to be. And that is Catherine Valenti's Space Opera, which basically sits almost in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Territory. It's... It's it's running Eurovision to decide whether the human race should continue in a in a sentient sort of galactic community where you have to show that you have have the you, know, you, you belong in, in in the galactic society that's there, and it's enormously fun to read, much more substantial than it looks that on first glance, and perhaps what what I one thing I enjoyed most about it was that Valenti. Is actually a much more varied writer than we give her credit for. She's capable of writing really quite dense and clotted prose in support of, you know, fairy tale kind of constructs. And then she does something like this, which is just lean and fun and entertaining, but smart. And I, I, I strongly recommend it. It's smart. It's well thought out. And you're right. She, she she's she can write things um, like um, Six Guns No White that are. Uh, pretty straightforward uh, adventure narrative. You can see what what the origins of that are in terms of pop culture. This and this is I, I I'm always envious when a Locus reviewer comes up with a line that I wish I'd come up with. And I, who else reviewed this for Locus? Was it Liz? Yeah, I think so. Oh no, no, I think it was Adrienne. No, it's Adrienne. Absolutely. Uh, well, Adrienne, I'm envious because you came up with the only description that I could think of that fits. Cat Valenti's prose at the beginning of this novel, which is that it's like a basket full of puppies tumbling all over one another trying to get out. <laughs> it's word after word, phrase after phrase. She's just having so much fun with language. It's so inventive. There's, a, I know there are people who are who are put off by that sort of thing, but you know, it, it's it's almost it's not Joycean, but it's certainly a lot of wordplay and a lot of just joy in the language itself, um, which at sometimes in, in in Valenti's other works can get overripe. It seems to me here it's used very tactfully, and as you get further into the novel, you realize there is more at stake novelistically here than you expected. It has a feeling of – it starts out feeling like a lark, like a short story, and ends up feeling like a novel. Um, all right, it's my turn. Um, there's a – okay, the, the, oh, there's a bunch of stuff. Um, a fantasy novel. Okay, we, we, we talked about um, – science fiction uh, novels that sort of look back to Frankenstein and uh, fantasy novels that look back to Frankenstein. I really enjoyed one that looks back to Moby Dick, uh, Jeffrey Ford's Ahab's Return. It's a sequel um, which requires no knowledge. Well, you need to know two things about Moby Dick. You need to know that there was a whale and there was a Captain Ahab and there was a guy named Ishmael. That's about it. That's true. And he writes... What at first seems to be uh, a kind of, uh, again, a kind of a lark, a, a, a steampunk adventure, supernatural adventure with Ahab trying to track down his family in New York, um, in uh, enlisting the aid of a tabloid reporter, and uh, getting involved with a really frightening character who, as the novel goes on, begins to sound more and more familiar, and the the political subtext of the novel, which is undeniable by the time you're done, is so insinuated into the adventure story of it uh, that you almost feel like you've been uh, – like there's a bait and switch, but you enjoy the switch. 
<laughs> that sounds so, fair. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's it's a. I mean, it's it's not too hard. Well, the the, the villain of the piece, who is a frightening, supernatural, almost Voldemort-like character, is somebody who gives speeches to the Know Nothing Party, which was a real political party in the 1850s in the United States, uh, talks about how all these immigrants were ruining our culture and how we have to preserve the world for people like us. And it's really pretty direct by the time you're done with it. Um, but none of that interferes with the uh, adventure plot. And it's very suspenseful. It has street urchins in it. It has gangs of kids in it. It has a manticore in it. Uh, it has Bartleby the Scrivener shows up here and there. Um, zombies. It's got a, a lot of enjoyable things in it. It does, and I strongly recommend it. I'm just kind of reeling a little bit, Gary. Mm-hmm. I am genuinely reeling. Because it, you realize it's been 10 years since Jeff's previous novel came out? Really? Yeah. This is his first novel since The Shadow Year came out. And The Shadow, Shadow Year came Year. out in 2008. Mm-hmm. Which seemed to me to be very autobiographical. Uh, I know he'd been working on this for a while because we were talking about it years ago. And you, you immediately you think a sequel to Moby Dick. You're thinking, well, a sea story. No, this is not a sea story. This, this is set in a kind of magical mid-19th century New York, which has been the setting for a few other novels. Alexander Irving's novel, The... Oh, what is it? The Jade. What was Alex Irving's? A scattering of jade. A scattering of jades, set in the same New York as Alex Irving's A Scattering of Jades. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 a ripe area for fantasy novels. Even though I don't think uh, Jeff Ford is the kind of person who would write a uh, a franchise of it. But it's you know, mid nineteenth century New York is as viable for this kind of thing as mid nineteenth century London is. Um, and it's a very different kind of culture, and he's done his research. He's There's also a scene in it um, uh, set in a community um, that actually existed in the 1840s and 1850s in what is now Central Park. It was mostly an African-American community but with a lot of immigrants. It was kind of almost a little utopian area. So even though the novel is very critical of American history, it also, I think, men, means to show the promise of American history. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I love the book, too very much and strongly recommend it uh, I was surprised at just how easily I fell through it uh, and I should say that whilst A Had's Return is his first novel in 10 years there's obviously been a lot of short fiction and there's the major novella the other uh, last year The Twilight Pariah which which is I guess kept his profile out there whilst we, and why I was so surprised that it had been so long um, there's an argument to make that Walter John Williams is the best adventure writer we have and if not the best, one of the best. And one of the defining works that he's you know, been working on for the last chunk of his career is the Praxis series, you know, the whole Dread Empires Fall series, which he wrote a trilogy of some, some years ago. He wrote a short novel from, for me at Tor.com uh, you know, just, well, you know, just last year. And now is delivering uh, a major new trilogy um, that kicks off with the accidental war. This is seven years after the end of the previous book in the series. The two major characters, Martinez and Sula, are in exile, frustrated and patient to get back into fight, you know, fighting the enemy that their empire is facing. It is the classic stuff of space opera adventure and everything. Now, this particular volume 
takes a little longer to get back to real, you know, to, to um, real space opera machinations uh, in, than the cover particularly would would give you to to believe. I mean, as a Praxis novel, there's your exploding sp- spaceship destroyer yeah. under attack and that kind of thing. But tremendous fun. Really entertaining. One of the questions that I always have, and I, you're right about his writing adventure fiction, because last year's Quillifer, which was clearly moving into Flashman territory, was as good a performance of that sort of thing as we saw last year. My question is, I, the last Praxis novel I read was probably 20-some years ago. Um, do I need to be up on the series in order to enjoy the new trilogy? You don't need to. You don't need to have read the, other se- the rest of the series at all. Um, you probably more need to for the you know the, the book that he wrote for me, but even it stands alone uh, impersonations. But you don't have to have read uh, the Praxis or the Sundering or Conventions of War, and that came out in what the last Praxis novel came out in twenty oh five. Okay, so you don't need to have, have have read it, but it doesn't doesn't hurt. But th- but there's, there's a real you know attempt to make it stand alone. So it's certainly one of those things that if you're not reading Walter John Williams yet, you could start there. Good to know. Okay, this is my turn. Let me think. Um, hmm, I've got more things on my list than I expected to have on my list. Let me recommend a novel that most people have not seen yet because it's one that's um, unexpected. And it's unusual. For, I, 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 I have to admit up front, I'm a sucker for Lavi Tidhar's alternate histories. He does them in a way that nobody else seems to do. Um, the new one from um, Tachyon is called Unholy Land. And at, at the beginning, and even in the promotional material, it looks like one of a number of um, novels that deal with an alternate Jewish homeland. What if what if this plan? What, what if the Yiddish Policeman Union? What if the Jewish community had ended up in Sitka, Alaska? There was a novel twenty years ago by uh, Janet Berliner and George Guthridge, in which they end up in Madagascar. Well, this is based on there. There was one a couple of years ago by a, a distinguished Israeli writer, in which the Jewish community ends up on an island in the Niagara River in upstate New York. This one is based on an actual expedition in 1905 to. Um, what is now part of Uganda, and uh, somebody, which was then British East Africa, and the British had offered a chunk of that country to to Jews, and what if they'd actually settled there in 1905? That's only what it appears to be. He's he's doing more alternate histories and more interesting things with alternate histories and more interpenetrating alternate histories than than he's ever done before. Uh, Yes. There's there's a there's a character in it who is pretty clearly based on Lobby Tidhar himself. Um, if he's not, he should not have had this character win an award for writing a novel called Obama. Um, <laughs> Osama. Or, no, yeah, Osama, Osama, not Obama. Osama. Not Obama. Osama. Um, I would love to read can't... Lobby Tidhar's Obama. I'm sure it'd be great. Lobby, 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 go ahead and write Obama now. It's it's, it's time. Um, the same character is considering writing a novel in which Hitler is a private eye, uh, which was, of course, a man live streaming. Uh, but but there are multiple characters in it, multiple histories. Um, it's one of these things that explores the idea uh, in a way that I hadn't seen explored before, and I've read a lot of, uh, of a lot of different kinds of alternate histories. And it's a fairly short novel as well, which is the other thing that I think is... Uh, Maybe that's a trend this year. Maybe some of the strongest novels we're seeing this year 
are not uh, doorstoppers. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. I was, I'm certainly happy with that as a trend. I am too, because the other I've got a couple of other novels on the list that are not doorstoppers either. Okay, your turn. My turn. About two th- about about tw- eighteen years ago or so, and around about two thousand, Alistair Reynolds mm. you know, came on the scene with Revelation Space, uh, which kicked off a, a series of novels, which uh, found readers across the globe. That uh, sort of a gothic new space opera that that he he founded. He's gone on to become one of our best science fiction writers, if one that shows right. up on American awards ballots too seldomly. Uh, he wrote a book called The Prefect a while, a while back, which got a lot of press. And he's, this year he released a, a follow-up, a book called Elysium Fire, uh, which mm-hmm. is now sub, you know, subtitled a, Pre- a Prefect Dreyfus Emergency, uh, which is what they're calling the series because it features Tom Dreyfus, who's this... Um, Police officer in 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 the Redem- in the Revelation Space Universe on the glitter band, which is there, there. Uh, and it's entertaining and it's smart and it's wonderfully done. It's that, that kind of big science fiction space opera that we we, we really do fall in love with. You know, it, it's 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 someone described as Paris the Caribbean meets Firefly, and that's, that's probably awesome. not a terrible description. And since I mentioned that Yoon Ha Lee has a major new novel coming out in January, so does mm-hmm. Al. Al has a sequel oh, caught to uh, Revenger, Shadow Captain, comes out in, when you, in when January. When you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean, I was thinking of Revenger. I mean, the Revenger is a good, flat-out, old-fashioned space adventure story. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is the follow-on on, on to, on to that coming out, so I, I strongly you know, sort of recommend that you keep an eye out for it as well but Elysium Fire is great stands alone you don't need to to have read the prefect to to enjoy enjoy it Al tends to be very careful about these things so yeah let me for for my next choice I'm going to move fully into the area of fantasy since we sometimes get accused of not paying enough attention to fantasy because let's be honest you and I don't read as much fantasy as we could Um, and we could read more fantasy than there's too much fantasy no, there's not. There's uh, not too much uh, fantasy, Gary. There's just too little time. Okay, there's, you're right. There's too little time. But um, uh, a, a writer whose career I followed at the beginning and uh, has become more successful since then uh, with Her Majesty's Dragon was Naomi Novik. Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver, which is a takeoff. Uh, it's, I mean, takeoff is not the right word. It's a novelized rethinking of uh, the story of Rumpelstiltskin, uh, which which turns into an epic fantasy as it goes along, but it does one of the things that very few writers uh, seem to do in fantasy, um, and that is the beginning of it is essentially the father is a moneylender and uh, he's not very good at it, and his family is terribly poor, and the daughter takes over his job, and uh, turns out to be a very good uh, at, at collecting the money that's owed to the family, and she gets involved with. Uh, with cobalt-like fairies and so forth and so on. But um, what impressed me in the first part of the novel, before it turns into fantasy, and it turns into literally, and I said this in my review, it literally is a song of ice and fire. There are ice demons and fire demons fighting it out by the time the novel is over. That's impressive. But it was equally impressive that in the beginning of the novel, she describes what an Eastern European village might have been like in the early 19th century, what the economics of money lending would have been. In other words, the actual economic and social structure of this world is worked out with a kind of detail 
that I too seldom see in fantasies. Um, the idea that there was an anti-Semitic element to uh, the Rumpelstiltskin story is one that Jane Yolen has talked about and has written stories about. It's one which uh, has, I'm sure, a fair amount of uh, uh, ethnographical support at this point. But uh, but the, but the novel works very well on two levels. It works well on the level of being a fairly realistic understanding of the economics of poverty in, uh, in late medieval, early Renaissance Europe, and a flat-out uh, special effects extravaganza with lava monsters like uh, you get out of uh, the comic books uh, fighting it out with ice monsters at the end. That sounds like it gets more trivial as it goes along, but it doesn't. I think it... It's a book that earns its uh, stripes as a uh, as a high fantasy by the time it's over. Look, uh, two years ago, Novik came out with a book called Uprooted, which was a fairy tale retelling of a sort. And this really is the next in that space. You know, Uprooted like, won the world fantasy, was nominated for the world fantasy, won the Nebula, was up for the Hugo, was a bestseller. It was a wonderful, wonderful, powerful book. This, which is, you know, take Rumpelstiltskin has, has a strong sort of Jewish element, uh, you know, Jewish fantasy element to it, is really incredible, a wonderful book, um, and is you know, just as engaging and as powerful as Uprooted was, and you know, definitely on my list. Probably closes out my list. My list is at an end, Gary. I read um, short fiction. Oh, wait, wait, no, you have one more. Th- I have your list here, and there's one more thing on it you haven't mentioned, which that's, I have not read. And that's because I, I haven't read it either, so I took it off. I haven't finished it. Well, don't take, don't take it off because, okay. We, I, no, we, I can't we, put it on if we I haven't allowed, read it, Gary. Okay, but here's one we both want to read then, right? Uh-huh. Because it's Christopher Priest's An American Story, and I've read the reviews of it. And, again, uh, there, there are writers that draw me in, and Christopher Priest is another one of them. Uh, it sounds like a terrific novel. We can't talk about it because neither of us have read it, but it's on the list of things we want to do. Let me, okay, let me, let me uh, offer another uh, title here. Let's see. Um, well, there are a couple of titles we haven't mentioned that I think are at, at the very least worth mentioning. Uh, one is um, Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Moon, which is a much lower... Um, it's a much more confined and um, modest in scope novel compared to his recent things. It's essentially an espionage story involving moon colonies and and political revolutions on Earth. Uh, it has a couple of great characters in it. I think people who want to see these sort of um, solar system spanning uh, or uh, multi-character, uh, like near-future disaster novels, New York uh, – 2140 or 2312. Uh, it, it's not that ambitious a novel, but it's a very efficient tale. It's very well told. There are two very likable characters in it. It's a character that has virtue. It's a, it's a novel which has almost entirely all Chinese characters. Uh, and it raises an interesting issue because he's he makes a very good argument that by 30 years from now, which I think is wildly optimistic, but that's a separate issue. Uh, the moon will have been colonized, and the main colonizers will be Chinese. Um, from an extrapolative point of view, uh, you could make a good argument that the first people to establish moon colonies might be Chinese. Now, if you use that as your extrapolative base, and you're going to write a novel about moon colonies, 
then you've more or less boxed your in boxed yourself into a corner of writing a novel with Chinese characters in it. Um, there's a there's a viewpoint character who's um, who's an American, but but he's he's not by any stretch of the imagination a heroic figure. He's 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 buffeted around. The 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 hero of there is a hero of the novel is a, a young Chinese woman who is possibly involved in a revolutionary movement back on Earth. And uh, there's another AI in it. One of the things I noticed has become fascinating to Stan Robinson in his recent novels is figuring out how AIs gain agency, how they be, how they learn, how they grow, um, how they develop. And there's a so there's, there's a very good AI narrator in it. There's a um, um, very strong young woman character in it, and there's some interesting but not quite as detailed portrayals of moon colonies. As we saw, for example, in um, oh, uh, John John Kessel's *The Moon and the Other*, or for that matter, in uh, the, the the Luna series that we've seen from Ian McDonald. But it's uh, but, but I, I think I think it's a solid novel. I think it's simply a smaller in scope novel than the ones we've seen from him recently. And let me let me throw out a couple of other titles that I thought uh, are certainly worth considering and some of which have gotten very little attention, others of which have uh, probably gotten more attention. Um, one is there's a, well, it's, it's actually, an, I'll, I'll leave that off the list because it's actually a novella. Um, I think we should mention um, a couple of novels that uh, that I read. One is Rich Larson's first novel, Annex, which is, we have not talked about any young adult novels yet. This is a young adult, first of a young adult trilogy that deals with uh, an invasion of Earth. It has a lot of stuff in it that Rich, as he described to us when, when he was on the podcast, stuff he grew up with. So there's a lot of familiar stuff in it. There's a Peter Pan kind of template to the whole thing. Uh, there's a terrific kind of alien creature. It's basically kids uh, revolting against the aliens after their parents have been turned into what amounts to zombies. Uh, and it's it's a fast-moving adventure story. I think uh, it's going to be a fun trilogy. It's certainly a more imaginative dystopia than most of the ones we've seen, and I thought it was a lot of fun. And the other one, which I want to ask you about, because this is a novel which I don't even know why I got it. It's um, a novel by an indigenous Australian writer named Claire Coleman called Terra Nullius. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting strategy. Uh, because it takes place in Australia. Uh, it, it deals with people resisting the overlords. And for the first, I'm going to say, 50 or 60 pages of the novel, you think, okay, this is a novel about the British conquest of Australia. That's exactly what it's about. And then you realize, no, this is actually set in the future, and these are aliens who have conquered the whole world, and Australia is one of the last uh, points of resistance. Um, I mean, it, 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 it may be a little bit... Um, What's what's the word I'm going to use here? There may be a a too obvious parallel between its treatment of colonialism uh, in the past and colonialism in the future. But then in a sense, that's exactly what H.G. Wells did in The War of the Worlds. So in in a way, it's a a kind of classic novel of um, Australian identity defined in two ways. Once defined historically and once defined in terms of a kind of uh, grim dystopian alien invasion future in which uh, Australia becomes one of the last outposts. 
which is an odd way of saying it reminds me of another uh, novel. There may be a whole bunch of these that I don't even know about. But uh, it reminded me in a weird way of On the Beach by Neville Shute, uh, in which Australia, Australia was the last holdout against nuclear fallout in that novel. In this case, it's practically the last holdout against um, um, alien invasions because there's such a dry interior and they don't like dryness and so forth. But again, it's, it's very harrowing at times. In some, in some ways, it's a horror novel, and yet it's uh, very powerful, and I hope it gets some recognition, even though it's clearly not something that was published or marketed as particularly a science fiction no, it wasn't. I think I think it got quite a bit of recognition here, uh, and I know people who know her. Uh, oh. So I think I got a funny feeling. Cat Sparks knows her. Cat knows everybody. Um, yeah. And yes, I, I think it coming out from small beer is a great thing. I'll be fascinated. I, I, I even have this funny feeling. I heard. I have this recollection of just not being paying close enough attention that it was just up for a major award. So you know, interesting. Okay, that's the way it goes, and I'm sure there are novels. That we've missed. Um, let us know about them. Well, there's that, but also, I mean, let, let let's to be, to be more serious for a second, the whole point about this discussion is it's the beginning of a discussion about what feel like, um, you know, good books, you know, uh, uh-huh. and what feel like books of the year and books that are around. So there's that. Um, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, this, this, yeah, this is, this is uh, at, at, at this point in 2000. 18 with three months to go and I'm reading novels from the end of the year now Um, but um, I think that we've missed a lot and I think uh, that that does not mean we're ignoring novels it doesn't mean we've decided to leave people off the list there probably are people we've decided to leave off the list it's true but the point is that we're part of this small community which as you mentioned is the Coon Street community and even smaller it's a community of you and I Yes, that's true. And there are things we just don't see. Uh, there are. There are always things we don't see or don't get, you know, and it's, you can't. I mean, this is why I was, I, I pulled the um, Christopher Priest book from my list, and the only reason that I pulled it was mm. that whilst I've started it, I haven't finished it. And I have, I mean, like, I have the new Adam Robertson novel here by the pricking mm-hmm. of her thumb, which I am confident will be terrific. Um, I have to read Children of Blood and Bone. I have to read um, a bunch of other books. But you can't recommend right. things you haven't read, Gary. Um, I, th- I think people do that sometimes. Yes, but, but I'm saying we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to do that. I've not read. Uh, I've not. I mean, there are books like as you mentioned, Dave Hutchinson's books. I want to get. Uh, I want to get to all of those uh, because, on the basis of the few short pieces I've read in novellas, it's a, I think he's a terrific writer. Yeah. Uh, there are. Well, and, so there, there are there are writers who. Um, whose work, for whatever reason, hasn't come to our attention and maybe should be brought to our attention. And there are other writers that you and I simply don't cross paths with that uh, that other people might really yeah. enjoy. So, so when this when this episode hits the uh, the website t- today, feel free to be in comments. Tell us other books that you've re- that you've read this year that you think we should be talking about that you think are going to be amongst the books of the year. We would love to hear your views. Okay. But for now, time to wind up. And so until we meet again, this has been another episode of the Cood Street Podcast. Episode 335 million and four. They go on and on. It only feels like twice as many. Twice as many. Okay. Till next week. Talk to you. All right. Till next week.